check out Dogs Are Treat at dogsartreat.com. And if you go to their website at checkout and enter the code HXP20% off, you will get 20% off of your entire order on all of their branded products. Leashes, tie-outs, medical kits, paws are protected. Build your pack from the ground up and support a fellow houndsman that supports your lifestyle. Enter the code HXP20% off at checkout. Go to their website today at dogsartreed.com. is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up there! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week do you spend on As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. <laughs> On Houndsman XP Podcast this week, we're going to South Africa, and we are going leopard hunting with a professional hunter from South Africa. Gavin Lippius joins me on the podcast, and we have a great talk. We could almost call this Chris's Easter egg hunt, and you're going to get the uh, full idea of that when this podcast starts rolling. Before we get there, I want to bring you up to date on a few legislative issues that are going on and I can tell you that the hottest topic in the land is bear hunting in Vermont. Those folks still 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 need our help. We uh, have got houndsmen on the ground in Vermont that are posting all of the information and updates on the houndsman XP podcast group page on facebook you get all the contact information you need to reach out and come to the aid of our vermont houndsman we've got uh, some legislators who are extremely uninformed talking about something that they know nothing about nothing new in the political arena and it's up to us to inform them and educate them but uh, some of these guys are taking this thing and twisting it around. And Vermont is asking for our help. 
reach out. Check out the Houndsman XP podcast group page and get all that information right there. Montana Bill 468. Montana Bill 468 is coming out of committee and um, it's going to the Senate floor. And we're going to uh, continue to track that for you. But this thing is looking really good for us. So, but, but, but don't go to sleep on this thing. Keep that pressure on. Just, if you've already emailed, email the same people again and ask for an update. Let them know that you're watching and keep the pressure on that way. So you can follow Terry Zink on Facebook. He's keeping everybody up to, to date on that. Montana State Houndsman Association is uh, posting updates on their groups as well. So make sure you're not asleep at the switch. It's no time for complacency. We've got a lot of work to do. I also want to give a shout out to all of our patrons on Patreon that are sponsoring this show. I can't tell you how much that means to us. And you guys are absolutely shareholders in this show. We love to hear from you. We want to hear from you. So make sure you're reaching out to us and uh, getting involved in this podcast. This is our voice to stand united, bridge gaps in the hunting community, and secure our future. So preserve, protect, and promote. You can join a very good group of houndsmen on Patreon and become a shareholder in this podcast. And you can do that for as little as $1 per show. You can go to our website. Click on our Patreon or support the podcast, and it will take you to our uh, uh, Patreon page, and it'll give you clear instructions on how you be can become involved in that. Monthly drawings, you get discount codes from our sponsors, a lot of good stuff there, and it helps us continue this podcast, give you these le legislative updates, be your voice for all things hounds hunting, uh, hound hunting across the globe. So... Guys, I'm really excited about this podcast, about this interview. I was really excited the first time I did it. I messed it up. You'll hear that story, and uh, you're going to enjoy this. So I'd say it's time to get rolling. Time to dump the box. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine is the most comprehensive magazine that represents your lifestyle as a houndsman. Houndsman XP is very proud of our partnership with Southern Hound Honey Magazine because they represent our mission to preserve, protect, and promote. If you can hunt it with a hound, it is being covered in the pages of Southern Hound Honey Magazine. You also get an in-depth look at the men and women who are engaged in this lifestyle, living it every day to the fullest. From the Rocky Mountains to the Southern Swamps and across the ocean, with articles about our international houndsmen and what they're chasing across the pond. Go to southernhoundhunting.com, get your subscription for $15 a year. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine, promoting the fair chase experience. When I was a kid, I, I clearly remember uh, when I was just a young lad and... Uh, the community had an Easter egg hunt and we all went down to Donner Park and there was always a special golden egg that you were trying to find when, when we went on this Easter egg hunt. And I remember standing on that line and 
they said go. And the reason you're trying to find this golden egg is because it had a gift certificate in it for a shopping spree at a local uh, uh, retail store that had all kinds of toys. So uh-huh. all these kids are running madly across Donner Park trying to find the golden egg. And I remember this just like it was yesterday. And I may have, uh, but, but they say go. And so I'm just running across the yard looking for the golden egg, looking for the golden egg. And I was missing all of the other eggs along the way. And I remember getting to the other side of the park and turning around and a kid behind me actually found the golden egg. And I thought, how did I run past that? And that's, <laughs> that's exactly what this podcast, when we recorded it last week, was like. You had so many gems, so many golden eggs in that thing that I was missing all of it. So um, it, that's why we're, we are re, uh, recording this episode again. And uh, I was just amazed. I was enthralled by all the information you had where you're where you're hunting gavin i'm just going to turn it over to you tell us introduce yourself for for our houndsman xp audience all right so i'm um, a, a south african native born, born south african um i come from a dutch heritage a dutch descent so my surname lipius that's uh, directly dutch um my mother's side has um traces back to the isle of man as well so a little bit of a a mixed breed, um, but uh, yeah, we have a strong, strong history in South Africa. Um, I've hunted pretty much all of Southern Africa, a lot around the world as well, but obviously based all my, my efforts in Southern Africa. So that's from East Coast right across to the West Coast and um, as high as, as Zambia. So um, I suppose your, your listeners would need to get maybe a little bit familiar with that Southern African map, but it, it's quite a large area. <laughs> that's okay we need we need a little history on or a little lesson on world geography here because i can tell you after we started talking i i dug mine out and started looking and it kind of expands your mind a little bit i like gaining knowledge i learned the difference between zimbabwe and south africa and where all that was was located so how'd you land in australia well my wife has wanted um a safer, more long-term, secure base for our family for, for many years. So, so she was on the farm with me close on ten years, and it it was a constant theme. And 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 if you have a bit of foresight, at least at this point now in the South African political spectrum and the economic spectrum, it it doesn't it doesn't hold a bit of it doesn't hold a lot of positivity. Not a lot of long-term positivity. So um, when our first son was born, we have three children. When our first son was born, and then it really started to ring true in my mind. I'd sort of kept that on the side, like, all right, well, if, if things really get bad, we've we've got an out. And um, But then when he was born, then it, it became a lot more clearer that we probably need to set this base up now while we still at the particular age we were and, um, and while we still had the energy. And it was also at that point that, um, that my hunting uh, was running well. So I was, I was close to the peak there. So it lined up nicely. Um, Australia is a great choice for South Africans because the lifestyle is very similar. The climate is very similar. 
Um, sports are quite similar. Uh, language is very similar. Um, so so there's, it's not a, a major culture shock. Obviously, it, it is a different country and, and different people, but it's not a massive shock. So we, we can, we can um, acclimatize fairly easily in Australia coming from South Africa. Yeah, yeah, but the the thing that that um, the thing that that really drew us together was the fact that you're a houndsman from South Africa, and um, you reached out to me uh, in a in a way that that uh, I made a mistake in the first sending podcast and uh, had some information switched around there and. You reached out to me and talked to me about it, and I thought, this guy, this guy's done his homework. He's somebody that that we need to talk to, and we need. So, you're a professional hunter from South Africa, and explain what a professional hunter is. So, a, a professional hunter is somebody that is licensed by the state. You 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 complete a particular course, and um, you have to do a theoretical and a practical examination of, of a period of a few weeks um, that's in the country South Africa itself it does vary throughout southern Africa uh, Zimbabwe you have to serve a two-year apprenticeship so it is it it can be more more stringent dependent on where you are but um, so a professional hunter someone who's licensed by the state um, they they need to have an uh, like an intricate knowledge of all game the, the full understanding of the greater ecology. Um, they need to be very well versed with all the ordinances and the legislation around hunting and conservation and game management. Um, need a need a, a good four by four, good pair of boots, uh, physically fit and healthy, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a good rifle, and, um, and 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 a good encyclopedia of of, of Naughty jokes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we don't want to put an explicit label on this podcast, so we'll leave those on the sideline. We'll pick those up in later conversations. Yeah, no, that normally uh, that normally happens around the, the campfire late in the evening. <laughs> That's great. You know, one thing I've always noticed about watching and my own experience with with professional hunters in South Africa or anywhere in Africa is it just seems like there is such a uh, an awareness of what your what your client needs to be doing. And it doesn't come across as ever being degrading or, you know, if I it, I'm a seasoned hunter, but the professional hunter is there. It's like standing right beside you. I've never shot. I've I've never taken a leopard or an elephant for that matter, you know, any of that type of game. But the professional hunter is in your pocket, and he's saying, okay, here he comes. Shoot. Shoot again. Put another one, you know, shoot again. And that that is so different than my experience as a hunter that, that usually doesn't use guides. So 
professional is it sounds very professional and i i i compare that to uh somebody that that is in a military type situation you know that's the enemy there you go but it's not you guys are so much deeper into that you're talking about conservation you you know the game you know all these things about i'm a stranger in a strange land and you are there to guide me through that keep me alive and you're an advisor you're a paid advisor as much as anything that's exactly right and and there's a couple of things that you said there that that that, that have real relevance so one of them you said that military framework what we found in the in the general professional hunting and even in the game ranching and the conservation industry is a lot of ex-military people have a tendency to migrate to that as a career after leaving the military um, in south africa itself had as a fairly recent war so that just ended uh, like around the late 80s um a border war uh, against uh, communism um, fought in northern Namibia and in Angola. Those are two other things for your listeners to have a look at in the map, and, and a bit of that history. But yes, so a lot of a lot of the industry is um, is populated by ex-military individuals. I am not, but 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 many are. So that theme, that um, that that kind of basis, who that person is, is quite quite common. Then the next thing um, was. The, the guiding well, be, before we move on let me yeah just let me let me clarify what i said real quick because i don't want anybody to think that i'm you know putting hunting into warfare type stuff i'm talking about the calmness that a professional hunter brings to a world of chaos that's what i'm talking about exactly. the the professional hunter's ability to i mean everyone every every video and i can hear it in your voice yeah, this is chaotic, but keep your cool. We're because there's stuff there that will hurt you, kill you, and I I really appreciate the part of that professional hunter, professional, professional, professional. You've been there, you've done that. Exactly right, and 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 so um, what you find is as you mature in this, so your 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 kind of need to control the situation or even to maybe constantly advise the the client declines you 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 allow that that vehicle sort of to drive itself more as you mature into this and understand those parameters and have a greater in-depth um control over it security over it so that experience for for the paying hunter the traveling hunter becomes more of his own when you're young you're sort of following the textbook a little bit you're following all the advice you've sat around the camps you you don't really know exactly you you you, you got the right characteristics for most part but you still you still got to feel it out for yourself and i suppose that's in anything but but yes, as you mature, as you as you as you get that that experience and the time, and and once you've been charged many times by lions and 
and faced many elephant charges and then understand what that all means, then the experience for the, for the client, for the hunting tourist, becomes more his own. Well, I'm not going to allow you to take me on that Easter egg hunt again, because there are a lot of there are a lot of rabbit paths off of what you just said. But <laughs> I mean, there's so many gems in what you just said. I know you're going to use a term that has been mis uh, miscommunicated to the world abroad. And you're going to use a term called trophy hunting um, in this podcast. And yes. I, I want to get, uh, it's one of those terms that is very familiar to a person that goes to South Africa, but then is misconstrued or, you know, perverted and twisted in cultures around the world. So I just want to, I want to slay the dragon in the room and talk about trophy hunting and what it means to you as a professional hunter and what it means to the culture in South Africa. Um, yeah, I think we have a very clear understanding of, or, or at least collectively, we would in Southern Africa think of trophy hunting as the person that is trying to achieve the extraordinary, the, the, the above average, the, the trying to complete the more challenging task, the more difficult um, hunt. So to step out into the felt and shoot a kudu is not incredibly difficult, but to step out and to shoot a particular aged bull that will measure between 50 and 60 inches is a, is a feat, is a task. You need to spend a lot of time up and down many mountains. To take a true trophy leopard is, could be several trips to Africa to achieve that. And, and trophies are defined by scoring, but that's sort of like just a, that's just a, a guide because we need to categorize things. We need to, to classify things to, to understand where it enters and, 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 and work at what level it is. It's a lot of people refer to the inch tape and how that ruins it, but you got to step aside from the inch tape and not worry so much about that more about the fact that that particular animal is, not the standard and the, the norm. It's the above average. And the people that, mm -hmm. that pursue that are, are, are making a greater challenge for themselves. It's, it's more difficult. It takes more time, more effort, more knowledge, more miles traveled, more money invested, more patience, more self-restraint. It, it, it is more difficult than, than shooting something for meat. And Obviously, there's, there's, we hunters, there's, we're not talking that there's something wrong with meat hunting by any means. It's just, that's the definition of trophy right. hunting. The person that wants to 
go that extra mile that wants that that special animal and sometimes it's not necessarily the animal that has you know the buffalo that has the wider spread it could be uh, a buffalo that has a really worn old boss with one broken curl and and, and that may be a trophy to that particular hunter but you're not going to replicate that again very easily. You could spend another lifetime waiting for that. Taking a seven-year-old plus male leopard that's held a territory, that's passed on his genetics, uh, from a conservation perspective, you're comfortable that those genetics are, 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 are in the ecology of that, you know, at least that local ecology, and to remove him has next to zero impact on the greater population. But the benefit of that to conservation is massive because those dollars is what funds that, the, the, the maintenance, uh, the preservation of that wild land. And um, it's extensive. Yeah, in yeah. Be, be, before we, yeah, before we get into the, the economical benefits, I think the 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 message to the broad-based public is um you know it's easy trophy hunting is easy you 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 pull you you drive down the road you shoot this big animal you cut its head off you hang it on the wall but what you're saying is it is a it is a dedication at a level that is above that it has been cheapened by, we've allowed it to be cheapened. The, the anti-hunting culture has, uh, has exploited that, that term to the point that even among the hunting community, we're like, well, I'm not a trophy hunter. But what you're saying is the level of dedication that it takes to achieve that goal is so far exceeding anything else you know besides besides the the economic value i mean when somebody comes to south africa to hunt and they want to they want to harvest the most majestic animal that they can find they they aren't they aren't just it's not a chip shot you know it's not a chip shot for them they may pass hundreds of other animals before they choose on taking that particular one. They may return several times. They may also get lucky. And, you know, that's also just part of it. They might step out of the lodge, uh, jump into the vehicle with their professional hunter, and a few miles down the track, there stands a 60-inch kudu bull, and, wow, what a lucky day. Good for you. But in terms of being (laughs) the norm, (laughs) you can't count on that, Hank. I'd be. I'd rather be lucky than good, Gavin. Yeah. I'd rather be lucky than good. Go Mark ahead. <laughs> yeah. So 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 so. Get into get into that economic benefit. Talk about you know what really what what trophy hunting really means to South Africans, the, the, the people on the ground that are living there. All right. So, so when, when you get deep into the hunting, when it, when it's deep as a passion for any, any person around the world, 
any country around the world. When when it becomes deep and it becomes part of your lifestyle, who you are, and and you have the means to to travel around the world. Um, it's not like the that you're only going to go take that set of horns and then come home with it. It's the full experience. It's the going to the place. It's um, seeing the 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 very rural basic economies, meeting those people, contributing to maybe the development of schools around it, water holes, boreholes, um, helping with anti-malaria, uh, combating malaria. It's it's very diverse. So so the contribution of international hunters, of traveling hunters, primarily is those dollars allow for outfits. So there's a difference between an outfit and, 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 and a professional hunter. An outfit is the man with the land, the man with the permits, the, the man that, that has the lease or owns the land um, and, and controls the, the, the offtake either by quota or by self-imposed quota, government quota or self-imposed quota. But so, so that's the outfitter and he's a business. And in order to mm-hmm. maintain that land, he needs a particular level of stock and that's only achieved through good conservation practices. Um, so having international hunters come in and pay to be there means that his business allows to, to, to continue. And in turn, he is protecting all that land like a, like a shop store owner would make sure nobody is pinching the, 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 the stock that he has or damaging the stock or destroying the infrastructure or as he's protecting that, so is that outfit of protecting his area. And it's done most effectively with the most advanced conservation practices and principles. Um, but the whole machine needs, needs dollars. It needs, needs to be funded somehow. It needs the anti-poaching units right. need to earn a salary. They need, fuel in their vehicles, um, they need ammunition, they need a helicopter, the, uh, the, the, the lodge staff need to be paid, uh, you understand. So the, the, take away the trophy hunter and you hamstring conservation significantly, fundamentally. So, so what happens to this land? I mean, because describe... The, Two-part question. So describe the area that you were actually outfitting, or I'm sorry, being a professional hunter for your outfitter in, and then describe what would happen to that land if there was not international hunting or, you know, that's a soft term for trophy hunting. So I work predominantly with one outfit in Mozambique, the country Mozambique, which is on the, the eastern coast of South Africa, Southern Africa. Um, Mashamba and Zoe Safaris, Grant Taylor is the, the, the outfitter there. And um, he has numerous concessions throughout, numerous hunting concessions is what we term it because Mozambique, you, you cannot own land. You can only get a 99-year lease. Government owns all land. So longest term you can get, you can't get a title deed, 99 years. So he has um, numerous concessions throughout Mozambique, central right up to northern Mozambique. Um, 
so so um that's all big game country and that's all unfenced wild true africa there'd be small villages of of indigenous people of native people throughout those concessions it's not like it's an area that's void of people it's not a, it's not fenced and and there's just animals inside it is a natural uh, a system but it's 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 literally millions of acres millions of acres and that one outfit is responsible for that 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 one man at the end of the day is responsible for millions and millions of acres that's amazing i mean you're talking how big is it how you're talking millions of acres. We're talking two million. We're talking ten million. You know, give us some perspective here. So, just the one concession that is north of the Zambezi River, very close to the Kohorabasa Lake, which is a, a, a man-made uh, dam or man-made lake. So, there's a, 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 a hydroelectric plant there, built or backed up on a on a big wall, a big dam wall. So that one particular concession that's north of that is uh, 1.5 million acres. That's as big as the Salmon Chalice Chalice National Forest in Idaho. You know, and and that'll give us some perspective back here in the States for our Western hunters. That's yeah. amazing. And and so that's one. How many how many more are there? He has he has at least seven camps. They're not all as large. There's a smaller camp that's right coastal on the on, on the forest, Mwanza. Um and that's probably only about two hundred thousand acres, but it's still a critical area. Only. Um, it's just <laughs> south of the Zambezi Delta. Um and, and that's where we do a lot of the leopard, and, and we do a lot of the the, the, the darting and coloring and that because it's coastal forest and the, the catch tree high because um, the, the the trees are, are tall, you know, sand forest. So it does make for for easier working from that perspective. But um, he's got concessions up in northern Mozambique, um, south of the Zambezi River. It, it does depend also where you want your your species. So close to the river is where you're going to get your crocodile and your hippo. And there they would have many, many, many hundreds of miles of river frontage that you'd be able to do that on. So it's a variety of, 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 um, of habitat, all with their own unique um, different conservation perspectives and always the human pressure. Not not cities backing onto them, but there's still the demand for for you know there's still a forestry demand, a, a legal logging demand. There's still obviously the bushmeat trade where um, there, there's organised poaching. It's like an organised poaching uh, syndicates that'll go in and 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 pay people to um, hunt game illegally and bring the meat in. There's ivory poachers and smugglers it's 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 diverse what what walls they or what they have to combat and then the knowledge that's needed to be able to manage those from a conservation perspective so river iron habitat is very different to a conservation perspective on what a a savanna habitat would be or a coastal forest would be you need you need to understand the color ecologies 
so so you spit out a lot of information right there and and again going back to that easter egg hunt analogy i'm going to avoid running for the finish line here mm -hmm. what have you got for like the next four weeks when when we can really drill down into all those different gems that you've given us i mean you're talking about ecology you're talking about i'm not going to take the bait gavin uh, <laughs> we got to keep this hound focused <laughs> we're going to keep this hound focused for now but man there is so much it's so complex the issues that you're talking about are so complex and just deserve a lot more conversation and um um let's it's let's draw this back into anti-hunting anti propaganda the their understanding of of what the playing field is 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 so childish is so um um so minor so it's they they haven't even scratched the surface but they condemn it i mean you're talking about illegal mining and you're talking about illegal timber harvest and and right. ivory trade and all this other stuff and I mean, it's all just laying out there, and I just want to pick it up and run with it and talk about it and all this other stuff. But this is a Houndsman XP podcast, so I'm going to stay focused today. Good and, job. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So <laughs> I, I can see a lot, a longstanding relationship here, and you, you being a, a, a regular guest on the Houndsman XP podcast. Uh, but I called you about there. leopard hunting. Sure. I called you about leopard hunting, and and uh, but before we get to leopard hunting, you know, describe the, you're a houndsman, and you're a houndsman first. You you struck me as that guy that's a houndsman first. There is something about the connection between the hound and the the professional hunter that has drawn that common bond and drawn you into that side of it. So give us a little bit of history there. Houndsman XP is very proud of our partnership with the organization Freedom Hunters. Freedom Hunters is a nonprofit organization that takes America's veterans hunting from field to field, from the battlefield to a field near you when you volunteer your time to take America's warriors hunting with you and your hounds. It's easy. Go to houndsmanxp.com, click on the partnership tab, and it will take you to Freedom Hunters. You can go direct to their website to make donations at freedomhunters.org. Support America's heroes. Let's pay it back. Visit Freedom Hunters at freedomhunters.org or go to houndsmanxp.com and you can find them on our website from field to field. Yeah, so that that bug bit me. Um, it 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 bit deep, it buried in my heart, and there's just no turning back from that. Once um, I don't know. Once once you hear those, the voice of the hounds. Once you see them grinding their nose and their tails wagging. I, I don't know what it is. Uh, sitting in the back of the pickup with them lying on you and. I don't know what it is. It's just a, 
a very deep connection and there's and that's it once it's done that's it it's done so yes i specialize <laughs> in in hound hunts um and and that's been my my niche for the past 20 odd years 22 years so as a licensed professional hunter but predominantly a, a hound hunter and predominantly for leopard because that's where that's where the greatest challenge lies that's a really epic animal and it's also where you can make a living doing it w- mm-hmm. which is you know a very motivating factor south africa itself especially the cape so currently that's the western cape and the eastern cape in more modern times but when, when settlers first arrived, that it was just the Cape Province, um, and, and we're talking, you know, back records from the, the the late 18th century, the early 19th, a lot coming out of the mid 19th century. So, um, the the colonists that arrived there, the, the the pioneers that arrived there, brought hounds with them, and the area that they were mainly used in was depredation work. And sheep farming in the Cape Province took off, and it was at a at a time the most important industry in in the Cape region. And um, predation on the sheep by jackal and caracal was something that was actively fought against, and the use of hounds became fundamental in that. So we have a a very old history. Tell us, tell us what a caracal is, because that's. I think most people know what a jackal is, but but briefly describe a jackal and then describe the caracal. Right. So your your two common crossovers there, jackal would be in your terms a coyote, not exactly, a little bit smaller in fact, but very similar, and and a very similar ecology as well, living in pairs, um, territorial. Um, a caracal would be a crossover to your bobcat and probably a very similar ecology there. Um, a caracal is, is a super predator. It's like pound for pound the, the, the most effective cat predator in, in, in the African environment, on the African continent at least. Um, very highly successful, very diverse. They can leap high in the air and grab birds in flight they can survive on very small rodents, and they can take big animals like sheep. They can take um, a, a natural game the size of a of, of a bushbuck. Um, so a, a very very effective um, predator, predominantly solitary, and quite cryptic in their movements. So quite crepuscular, early mornings, late afternoon, into the evenings little bit of a drop in, in, in movement over the main course of the night, but in areas where they're pressurized, they're almost entirely nocturnal. So it's, um, it's a difficult customer to deal with if you're a, if you're a sheep farmer. And like most, um, most predators, easy game, they won't just kill one and consume it. They'll, they'll, you know, if they get into a flock of sheep, they'll kill as many as possible and just leave the carcasses there. So, so hated by the early pioneers, and I don't think the relationship has changed much in the few hundred years that um, agriculture, livestock ag- agriculture, has been in Africa. Yeah, it sounds it sounds very familiar. But 
so I don't even know where to go after that. I've got I've got an outline the, the in front of Hound Dutch is most There you go. The, the top of Hound Dutch. <laughs> Pick it up, Gavin. The top go of with Hound Dutch most 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 commonly used is is similar to the foxhound. So initially that would have been what most arrived on the shores. Um, but even within that, there's other breeds that have come through. There's Welsh hound. There would have been some French influence here and there. There, were, there was a whole... Uh, uh, um, South Africa is, is very diverse in, in, in their ethnicity. So people from Germany, from Portugal, from France... Um, from England, from all over, and, and never mind all the native um, Africans. So it's a very diverse um, makeup, and, and that has influenced the hound. But in terms of how it works and, 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 and the style that was used is mainly what you could think of as more in terms of your running hound. So from my outsider perspective and obviously I, I know very little about American hunting just um, you know just what I get from conversations watching videos reading magazines I've been a subscriber to full craft for, for many years but and houndsman XP like, sort of maybe like and houndsman XP sorry <laughs> I should have said that shameless <laughs> plug <laughs> yeah I have I've got great great insight from from this podcast but yes, yeah, so, so sort of like those, like those South Texas kind of, kind of dogs, those more running dogs. They can tree, but they're not really from true treeing lines. And that has run through up until very modern times. More recently, we've seen a lot more um, import of uh, um, Gascons out of France and black and tans and red bones and walkers and, and red ticks and blue ticks and so much has arrived on our shores and, and I hope it keeps going that way and, and guys just keep improving and improving. But in terms of being able to tackle leopard, so we now go for for what would be like commonly understood as your doesn't have to be blue tick, but that kind of that kind of makeup. So so your your like bear hunting blue ticks, that sort of what they use now, what we use now for for leopard. For leopard, okay. So we're we're going to shift gears into leopard. I want you to describe a leopard hunt, and then describe the needs from a hound that you need in a leopard hunt. What are the demands that you're putting on a hound to capture a leopard? So I think the 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 obvious mental association or cross-reference can, can i interrupt you real quick can i interrupt sure. you just briefly here so we went from caracal to leopard but leopard is one of those species that american houndsmen look at it and they 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 see this cat as being you know uh, uh, it's it's an icon in the cat world so describe describe the difference or or describe a leopard and what it's like to hunt a leopard in South Africa. Yes, so so very elusive. 
they are very successful and they're very widely distributed. So you can find them on the outskirts of, of you know, towns and even smaller cities. Um, and a very successful predator, very adaptive. And a bad attitude. If you were to look at it in terms of like comparison to a mountain lion, you you would not be able to climb up a tree if a leopard is treed there. You couldn't climb up and put a noose around it safely. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it wants much to eat more you. Prone. Yes, they are much more prone to to attack. Um, like 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 most animals that have that fight flight zone. Once you've entered in that, you you oh, there's a high probability of a charge and an attack and um so yes it, it's it's so a I... complete different awareness when you approach a tree with a leopard in as if you were to approach a tree with a caracal in put it that way yeah. or as if you were to approach a tree with a mountain lion in so you don't so just fi- sort of you... walk up and start taking pictures <laughs> so you talk about fight or flight they get to the fight level a lot quicker than than cats in the the North American continent, you know uh, <laughs> that is that is so cool. It, I've actually climbed yeah. a tree with a mountain lion before, and uh, uh, I think it was more done as a prank more than anything. Because commonly, what happens when you climb a tree with a mountain lion is uh, they release their urine, they release their bladder. And that's always a good time for pictures, you know, when somebody's getting pissed on by a mountain lion. But but leopards, you go climbing a tree. Might be the other way around in the the leopard context. He might not be in the urinating part. (laughs) Might be the other party in the deal. (laughs) Dakota 283 offers you unparalleled protection for your hounds. We're talking about military-grade kennel crates uh i got got one of these two-door kennel crates here at the house it is super heavy duty it's got slap latches on it that are stainless steel easily fits in the back of an suv or if you're traveling with a camper shell it's a great way to keep your dog protected while you are traveling you just gotta check out their dash series this is a watering system and i've used a lot of these portable waterers over the years but this system is all integrated into one unit and the way it's designed out of high impact plastic the water stays in the tank when you're not using it because you can put a plug in it check them out Uh, the 3.5 is also compact enough that i can store it behind the seat of my pickup truck while i'm out hunting when it's super cold i've had exterior tanks before and as soon as i go to cold climates then i've got to figure out how i'm going to get water to my hounds and the dash takes care of that. So check out Dakota 283 at dakota283.com and at checkout, enter the code HXP10 and get 10% off of your order. Yeah, so, so, and then it's all that wonderful thing about hunting a big cat. It's all that allure of the track. I mean, that's, that's the, that's like 90% of it, I think, at least for myself. So that, that looking for tracks and following them and interpreting all that sign and working out 
time of passing and distance from where he could possibly be and, and what what is what is the pattern of the track show for his current movement and what could that possibly mean for the direction where he's going so is he heading into heels or is he coming out of the heels and how fast is he walking and that that, that that part of cat hunting that wonderful part of cat hunting that's there's so much information you know just in the track that that's a great thing about hunting leopard um and then just the the beauty of it the magnificence of when you actually manage to successfully beat him and catch him so so you're driving down the road it sounds very familiar yep. you're driving down the road you've got your your hound box in the back you've got you know everything set up there you see a track on the side of the road now talk Talk to me about sign interpretation. What are you looking at when you look at that track and trying to make a determination whether this is a cat that I can catch today or this is a nice track, but maybe we ought to go down the road and see if we can find something else. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's our starting point. So our starting point is um, try and get an idea of, of size. So it's very easy to determine male and female. Uh, anybody that's hunted cats would, would know that quite easily. So there's quite a big um, um, uh, size difference there. Um, so we then then refine it. So, all right, yes, we're pretty certain it's a male. If you're not so certain it's a male, you, you, you're not hunting it. You know, so mm -hmm. definitive it's a male. And now we're trying to get an idea of, of what we could potentially find at the end of those tracks um so we, we're measuring width of track length of tra uh, that's just the front pad width of pad uh, uh length of pad including toes so pad and toes um front spur and then we'll measure stride and we'll do that only when it's uh, at a walking pace so when it's at a uh, a direct transfer a direct register so hind foot landing on top of back foot then we know that that at a true relaxed walking pace then you can get an idea. So we've got a bit of a template for this, um, you know, what, what we're looking for in terms of length and in terms of uh, size. Um, the real trophy discerning at the end is on some visual cues, but we'll get to that at the end. So we, we work out, yes, okay, potentially this is the cat that, that we want to take. He could mm -hmm. well fall into that, that range. Um, we try to reel it in by sight as much as possible. So it wouldn't be like we found the track, uh, this looks pretty good, let's put the dogs down. We'll try and close that gap by visual tracking as much as possible. And we get a so lot of information while we're doing that as well. You get out of the truck and you will visually track how far? Well, we're always doing it in, in, in you know, it's never it's never conditions where there's um, snow come over the track. You know, so it's, it's right. all dry ground conditions. So it's uh, so the difficulty maybe we hit some like forested area where there's a lot of leaf cover. Then maybe we might take one lead hound and let him show us, and then pick him up at the end of that and, and keep going visually. So it's just the obstacles where where we put the hound down until we're quite confident we're quite close to the leopard mm -hmm. it can be that there isn't a possibility of doing that 
um, that the the terrain for so far is just going to make it impossible. Um, but in the case where it can be, we often just let a tracker go with the radio, sometimes two, especially in lion country. You normally send out two guys just for, for safety. And um, they'll take a handheld radio and they'll go as far as you can and maybe we'll leapfrog forward with the vehicle. Alternatively, it can be that there's a decent road network where you can find a track going into a particular block. You'll get a nice compass bearing of what is predicted travel should be and where you should be coming out. Maybe loop around there, pick up the track on the other side and keep leapfrogging it that way. And if he hasn't come out of the block, very good chance he's in the block. Yeah. It's rare that those blocks are like postage stamp size. It's normally very large areas in themselves. But it can be like in Zimbabwe, an ex-cattle uh, ranching area, and in South Africa and Botswana, an ex-cattle ranching area where the road network really facilitates that. And Namibia as well really facilitates that. And, and you can leapfrog and get ahead. So in terms of of like that um, cold trailing dog typically of what is known in 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 the southwest of the states where you're on the back of a mule or a horse and the dogs just punch it out and punch it out and punch it that doesn't exist in leopard hunting really we're not we're not really ever going to put the dogs down on on scent that's or a track that's much more than about like 12 hours and typically around eight hours um so so that parameter changes that that requirement in the hound at least and you determine that all from uh sign interpretation right you're determining how old that track is based on your sign interpretation yes and 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 there's a variety of methods that we do that so we can mechanically engineer that to a sense we might go in areas where the road network is fairly good and we'll go drag road. So every mm-hmm. afternoon it could be more than one vehicle and it could be for three or four hours that each vehicle has to put in because it's, it's large areas, but we'll, we'll drag those roads and clear them. And then we know anything after that is X amount of hours. Yes. But there are other things. And, and, and the more, the more depth you get at tracking, you can start seeing, um, there's, particular insects that only have, you know, nocturnal movements. If uh, the track is, is on top of that insect, well, there's a very good chance that that happened after whatever time of the morning or of the night. Um, there's other... You're blowing my mind now. You're way above... Yeah. <laughs> You're talking about... There's like diurnal species that would only be, be active, um, you know, late in the afternoon or through the day and then stop the activity late in the afternoon, and that'll give you an idea of what time the leopard passed or not. Um, th- there's many other indications. Weather is a huge one as well. So when was there wind blowing? Um, uh, was there any precipitation? Um, how hot was the sun? How quick should this track have dried out or not have dried out? Um, where is it placed? Is it in the shade? Is it? Th- there's a lot in track interpretation and um, that's a whole, that's just a whole nother thing. That's a whole nother thing. And the, the, the native trackers in, in South Africa, not just, it's not to say that you have to have, you know, be genetically African to be a good tracker by no means. But it's just a lot of those guys have grown up 
looking after their, 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 their father's cattle. And that's been their job for the first 15 years of their sort of, you know, young adult life. And so every day they are in the field and the newspaper they have to read is the sign, is the bush. So yeah. There, yeah. there's no, there's no Pokemon games. There's no television. <laughs> there's no mobile phone. There's not even anyone to have conversation with. It's, so, so that's sort of how it is. I'm not saying that for everybody, but that, that so, so sign can tell us a lot about the age of, of the leopard track. So we can get a lot of information. What kind of demands are you putting on your hounds? Okay, so you described a, a, a leopard, you know, how you locate the, the leopard. Now, what kind of, of realistic expectations are out there for your hounds? What do you expect a hound to do when you put them on a track that you know you can run? And there's a good probability, because I, I can only imagine, you know, you've got a guy that's an international hunter, he's a trophy hunter, and, you know, he's ex he's not out there for a joyride in the back, the bush or the back country of Zimbabwe. He expects some results. So talk to us about what you expect from your hounds in these conditions. That's right. So, so the man that's, that's, that's funding the whole deal, the man that's putting up the 30 or 40,000 US dollars to be there for two weeks expects results because typically he, th that is his background. That's, that's who he is. He didn't achieve that place in life predominantly, you know, you know, some people win the lotto, but generally speaking, that's the kind of characteristic of the person. So they, they, they want success. So yes, there is a, a high professional demand. Um, and then that transfers over to the hounds being of, of, of international quality of international competitiveness. So, um, for a good reference, a really good bear dog would make a really good leopard dog. And when I say a bear dog, that would mean something that you could find that track and, and put them on and they would, they would pull in that scent if whether that bear passed, you know, eight hours ago, 12 hours ago, they'd be able to start that track. They'd be able to then move it. They'll then be able to put pressure on the animal that it bays or trees. And, and we find like about a 50-50 ratio in that. So half of them tree, half of them fight on the ground. Mm -hmm. And the fight on the ground can be a walking fight or it can be from uh, uh, caves to caves in and around the, the boulders and the rocks up and down the mountains in very, very dense scrub. Um, they, they're normally going to the place of their advantage when, when they're doing the fight. They're not, they're not, they're familiar with where they are always. I often say, I often say to people, so, so if, um, if you are, are sort of heading home one evening from dinner at a restaurant or drink at a pub or something and some, some suspicious car starts really following you and then the, guys inside start shouting verbal abuse at you and you've got a good chance that you might w wind up in trouble and you're in your hometown, you know exactly where you're going. You know, maybe you're going to your friend's house because mm -hmm. he's a good backup or maybe you're going straight to the police station or maybe you're going straight home because whatever it is, you know what your plan is. It's no different for the leopard. They, they, that, it's not like uh, they don't know. They know exactly where they are, where they want to go, 
what's going to be their best plan. So, so they go to the place of their advantage. Um, and then your hounds need to be able to handle that. So physically they need to be able to handle that and mentally. Like, they, they, they must be able to withstand the pressure of that leopard charging them, scratching them, potentially biting them. Um, just the sound itself is very intimidating. The leopard, leopard sounds like um, if you were to take a, a, like a 500 cc and cut the exhaust pipe off and rev it. <laughs> brum, brum, brum. A leopard is loud and very intimidating. Is it more intimidating um, so than a lion? No, a lion's a little bit larger, a little bit louder, um, and a lion, yeah, a lion will kill you. A leopard probably won't kill you. It will hurt you. It'll just bite you real bad. A serious chance of, yeah, it it will bite and scratch you that that you will remember it for the rest of your life, but (laughs) a lion could very well kill you. Right. You know, you sent me a video of a, a leopard charge off of a bay up, and just the the audio file on that thing with a leopard roaring and charging i mean literally i looked at that and i was like wow i mean the hair stood back stood up on the back of my neck i was like this is serious business yeah it's it's wonderful and and to be in that mix when when that cat is making that noise and running from cave to cave and the hounds are screaming at it and and then it it sort of quietened down a little and then it builds up and it builds up and it builds up and at its peak then it'll charge and it'll swat the dog or two and it'll make its gap and then it'll find its next little standing ground its next little point put its its ass up into some thorny scrub or something and then build up and build up and and then it's 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 an incredible experience It's, it's worth all the hardships and sacrifices for sure. It, it, the way you describe it, I mean, I think you're spot on. It is uh, comparable for the North American houseman. It's comparable to a, you know, black bear hunt because bears will do that same thing. They, they will walk, okay. they will fight. They'll have, you know, they'll, they'll, you have walking bays until they decide that they've found their ground and then it's they'll back up in there until the pressure gets too big, and then they'll move out. So, perfect, perfect analogy, perfect comparison there. You know, to put it in to put it in perspective for somebody that's never experienced it. I still, I still want to come and hunt a leopard, though. I gotta do that. And you show. <laughs> yeah. So, so. Man, I, I'm I'm tempted to to break into this part on sinning, but I think it's going to be such a long segment, Gavin. I think that that you and I should probably save that part for a chapter two to the original cool. sinning podcast that I did, and and we can develop that concept. But we've been going for quite a long time. I I want to talk real quick, uh, and don't feel rushed. I I always say that real quick. You take whatever time you want. But, uh, uh, you know, so as South Africans, uh, professional hunter in South Africa, tell us about where your source of hounds are. I think that'll just really fit in well for this introduction chapter to 
South African hunting. Tell us what the source is for the hounds that you're using over there. So, as mentioned, we have, um, I think the base is probably the, the foxhound you would find in the base history. And then later would have been infusions of American hounds and, and more recently French hounds on, on a great extent. Um, we hunt a variety of game with hounds. So there's the depredation work, which is is the foundation of the history of hunting with leopard, but um, hunting with hounds. But there's also a lot of kind of sport hunters, guys that are going out and and hunting bushbeak, and there they want a slight different kind of set of of characteristics. So they 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 don't need any treeing sense or any treeing characteristic but they still want those dogs to be able to stand and keep that pig at bay. Um, so they voice dogs, they're true hounds, and, and that, that bush pig can run for hours and hours and hours and hours. It's not a feral hog. It's a native, a native pig um, to, to the southern African region. There's a variety throughout Africa that are all native, but um, it's a very, very hardy animal. And again, it's, 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 I've hunted uh, feral hogs, not not extensively, but I think I've got a bit of a an, an insight. The the bush pig is is much more hardy, will run much longer, will do a lot more damage to dogs, will not hang around and 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 sort of wait for the human to arrive. They um they they're a tough character. We're then not talking about hunt. We're not talking about warthogs here, right? That's a different different animal yeah, war, altogether. Warthogs, yes, it's a different animal. Warthogs are very rarely hunted with hounds in a sport hunting sense. They are a diurnal animal. You can get them out on the plains. You can walk and stalk them. There's no real need to use dogs. And the tusks that they possess mean that you will not, if you were to target warthog continuously, you'd be changing your pack weekly <laughs> right, they, right they are they're very very dangerous those tusks mm -hmm. so um um warthog there's no need but bush pig are nocturnal um very elusive um like thick dense mountainous areas heavy bush uh, river iron um so so not so easy to come across if you just uh, just stalking them if you're just mm -hmm. going to go out and do a walk and stalk so, so the use of hounds assists in getting those. Bushbuck, that's, um, that's a wonderful spiral horn antelope. And they also like the dense cover. They're also solitary, so they're not in herds. They're not walking out on the grasslands. They're not that easy to stalk. There's some environments where it is more possible, some habitat where it is more possible. But a lot of... Um, the area where they hunted with hounds is quite dense, quite thick. It's predominantly in an area, the Eastern Cape of, um, of, of South Africa. And there they're driven hunting. So you'll have the waiting guns, which will be positioned around the head of, of, of a valley. And the hounds will be fed into the base of the valley. And the beaters will slowly move forward, not in a big line, not many beaters, not not sort of shoulder to shoulder, more more handlers of the hounds, mm -hmm. but they'll still make a bit of a noise as they're moving through, and then those bush pig will flush, and, and 
those are the sport hunting guys then again and there's there's a whole um a, a whole culture around that there's there's you have to be able to judge the animal when it's passing by you in a few seconds window you know you, you you're not invited back if you shoot an immature animal. You're there not you invited go. back if you shoot a female. There's there's a huge um, uh, um, culture around that, um, and and that's probably all that's really actively hunted with hounds. There'll be guys that would be chasing baboons and they'll you know monkeys and all other little things, but it's not really it's not really common or institution at all. Right. Right. Well, it, so, or, it sounds like you just described white-tailed deer hunting in the south with hounds. You just described hog hunting in the, you know, with hounds, bear hunting, lion hunting. You're doing all of the same things in South Africa. It's just a different critter that that you're, you know, you're you're focusing your efforts on. But I think I think through this conversation i've realized that it's the same it's it's a different critter on steroids uh you know that's uh, been hopped up a little bit um but uh are you using the same pack of hounds to hunt all of these species or do you have specialists you know tell us about that yes you would you would need different characteristics in your pack to be able to effectively target those different species mm-hmm. um and if you just like a jackal caracal pack they normally combine that it's very common for those to be combined because typically those guys are doing depredation work they're getting paid for it by big farming cooperatives or, or, or you know large-scale private farmers um and so there'll be big teams that'll be moved out into the felt there. They'll spend three weeks doing sort of grid patterns and making sure that they get rid of um, uh, as many jackal and caracal as possible. But even within that, the caracal leaves less scent, is more cryptic in its movement. Trees um, will go in and out, will throw backtracks on itself, typical cat behavior. Whereas a jackal, you more need just pressure, pressure, pressure. You need to just stay behind it, stick on it, stay on it, and eventually Jackal will either go to ground, go to rocks, or some cases that run past some guns. It's very rare that they shot. It's normally the dogs that have to, to catch them. So even within that, there's small characteristics, characteristical differences. Um, bush pig and leopard, fairly similar in what you need from your house there. Mm-hmm. It's fairly similar. Just you need that treeing and locating sense when you when you go into the leopard. So bushpig don't know how to climb trees. They, they <laughs> went, went. <laughs> so so you don't really ever need that characteristic. But you still need this the the the, the, the courage and the the, the, the determination to stay on that animal until it stops. So there's slight differences there, but there's a lot of crossover. Um, the bush buck hounds are completely different again. So they are hot scent uh, running dogs. Um, they need to be highly athletic. They, they're almost always in 
very difficult, mountainous, dry conditions, heat conditions. They need to be able to work through the day. They Not necessarily the, the hot part of the day. We find in Africa, and this is almost across the board, and, and I'm talking winter conditions, that sort of by 11 a.m. in the morning, typically the, the day is over. You could pick it up late in the afternoon again when, when the sun goes down a bit, but um, typically the, it's just too hot for the dogs to thermoregulate. Um, so normally by that stage, it, it's, it's done. You could creep maybe up into midday if it's a really cool day, but generally not. Right, right. But well, they're hardy, yeah, eat, eat tolerant. So it sounds like it sounds like that. You know, we talked about this. Um, you know, the 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 demands on your hounds vary, and there there is always this big debate about what in the in the states about you know what makes a bobcat dog, what makes a coyote dog, what makes a hog dog, and and um, I'm glad that you. You, you drew those conclusions together and gave us this clear picture on, and you're, you're so well-versed in, in things that go on here in the States and, and being able to draw those analogies. Have you ever hunted here? I have. I've hunted um, in New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah. Nice. Nice. Well, you know what, Gavin? I, man, we could go on for hours, and and I intend, if you'll agree to it, I intend to go on for hours with you about this. But in future podcasts, and um, sure. sure, like I said, I'm like a kid in an Easter egg hunt. I, my mind's just spinning. I I see all these gems to try to pick up, and and I got to be focused here. So, um. We need we need to have future conversations and um, and things like that. But do you have any closing thoughts? Anything for for houndsmen across the globe? Because this will go out to houndsmen across the globe. Um, you know, we could go down the conservation path, and that's a whole topic that I'd love to talk about. Um, but man, you guys are you guys are just living in a totally different world, and I'm I'm a an addict to learning and gathering information and trying to find out what I can transfer into to my hounds and things like that. But, but we can, we can cover some of that ground later, but do you have any closing thoughts before we uh, wrap this particular podcast up? Yes. Um, I, I think that, that probably the biggest thing is, is, um, is patience taking your time, doing it properly. And I'll probably speak of maybe like from an advisory thing. I'm not sure. Maybe it's because I'm now a father. So it's, it's different. I, I talk differently now, but changes perspective, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. So, <laughs> so take your time. This is the thing that, that matures slowly. It's so deep it's so intricate it's it's an onion you just keep peeling different layers and you just keep learning more and more and it compounds and there will never be an end to it never and and that's that's the the greatest allure of of this game that we're in is is you just there's always more there's always more 
um, yeah, it's the 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 joy part is that iceberg analogy is that um, is uh, above the waterline. The peak is uh, the the cat in the tree or the charging leopard or you know, the, the, that wonderful thing. But underneath it is all under the waterline is all the sacrifices, all the um, miles traveled looking for tracks is all the cleaning of the kennels it's all the financial constraints it's all the bureaucracy it's all the um maintenance it's all the breeding it's all the learning it's all the and that's what that's what this really is for 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 80 percent of of this lifestyle so get familiar and happy with that i guess yeah, what a what a great summation of this conversation and and the overarching message of Houndsman XP is this is a lifestyle. It's something that if you stop learning, you're cheating yourself. You know, there is no person that can any any seasoned houndsman will tell you that there are other things that they can learn. There there are ways that they increase their knowledge. You know, the true houndsmen that I know learn something on every hunt. They learn something about a dog. They learn something about their quarry. They learn something about the landscape they're hunting in. And and it's a true, never-ending learning experience. It's a life journey to being a houndsman that we should never give up on. And and we owe it to ourselves to continue that path on learning and and expanding our knowledge and our experience. And and if you think you're there, then you might as well hang up the leash and go take up golf or something like that because um, uh, it's over for you. And you've cheated yourself. You've cheated yourself. And personally, that's why I'm so grateful for your podcast because I think I learn something in every episode. And learning doesn't necessarily have to be this one major life-changing thing. You find even these small little things that you pick up on here and there and here and there suddenly compound and then, wow, you have this full picture. And at the time that you got that little piece of information, it was just one little color in the bottom corner of that uh, of that puzzle. So, um, personally, I'm really grateful for, for your podcast. Thank oh, you, I, I appreciate that, Gavin. I was thinking about this this concept the other day. You know, I've I've thought about it and and tried to define what a houndsman is. You know, um, you'll hear people. To me, when another person, when another d- guy that hunts with hounds looks at you and say, that guy's a good houndsman, that's saying a lot, you know, and, and a good houndsman just makes it look smooth and natural and easy. You know, you get out and you see that track. It's not a, they act like they've been there before. Um, when, when there is a traumatic injury to a hound, they're not going into a total tailspin. They're like, hey, we know how to fix this because they've been there, they've done that, and and they've internalized it and used it to their advantage to increase their knowledge and their experience. Um, yeah, it's just a lifelong journey. Can't state it enough. That's right. There's no, there's no shortcuts in this game. You, You're you right. You have to walk that road. You 
you have to do it yourself. You have to travel it yourself. You can learn things from 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 literature. You can learn things around the campfire. You can pick up things in video and podcast, but you still you still have to walk that road. You're right. You're right. Well, Gavin, I'll tell you what, man. We've got a, we've got a lot of future. I think we've got a, a very good future in front of us, and uh, you've got a lot to offer the hound hunting community. I hope you will come back home with us and uh, really drill down into some of the nuances of being a houndsman. And uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for yours, Chris. Well. We close this podcast out the same every way, every week. You want you want to do it for us? You follow yours, and I'll follow mine. <laughs> yep, that's good enough, buddy. That's good enough. You follow your hounds, I'll follow mine, and uh, we'll get to it next time. Appreciate it, Gavin. Thanks, Chris.